You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, and this is the fifth episode of the Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast series with New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. The earlier editions, for your information, were The Virus, The Pandemic, The Response, Variants and Vaccines. This time, some frequently asked questions, 18 months into this global pandemic. Now, since we began this series of conversations with John Potter, the contours of the pandemic have altered. There have been, as you know, huge death tolls. Over 600,000 alone in the United States, most during the Trump presidency, but also in many other countries, including the United Kingdom and across continental Europe. By the process of evolution, newer, apparently more threatening variants of SARS-CoV-2 have emerged, especially out of large population high infection settings in South Africa, Brazil, and lately, as we've seen on the news, in India. In the latest outbreak in Melbourne, where I live, we had two related variants via India, Kappa and apparently much more infectious Delta variant. As we record this podcast, New South Wales is dealing with an outbreak of the Delta variant in their so-called Bondi cluster. The Agriculture Minister in New South Wales has tested positive. Before actual vaccines became available to inject into people's arms, politicians, journalists and scientists vaunted their prospect as our saviour and redemption. Now that vaccine rollouts have been happening in the real world, and data about their effectiveness comes rolling in, we have a sharper, more realistic, but still developing picture. And as many predicted, the human frailties connected to producing and logistically distributing the vaccine efficiently have been a problem. Here in Australia, with one of the most successful eliminations of community transmission of the virus in the world, along with New Zealand, of course, political incompetence and a range of social responses, including complacency and vaccine hesitancy, have meant a glacial rate of vaccination. For an Australian population of about 26 million, our current number of fully vaccinated citizens is just over a million. Aged care residents and staff, frontline health workers and people with disabilities have not been comprehensively vaccinated. Those earlier publicised categories of essential, at-risk workers and the vulnerable have fragmented. And there is still argument around whether it's better to vaccinate older or younger people. The doubts about the AstraZeneca vaccine caused by associated blood clotting events, including some deaths, really complicated the Australian vaccine rollout. That vaccine was by federal decree suddenly reserved for over 50s. Then the states decided to sidestep their earlier hierarchy of categories, determining the timing of vaccine injections to which age and health cohorts quite abruptly, allocating the Pfizer vaccine to 40 to 49-year-olds. Then the feds changed again, decreeing that AstraZeneca was now for over 60s. And so the Australian vaccination program lost further logic, coherence and speed. And the federal government were further distanced from delivery protocols and processes, but kept control over the supply of vaccines. And that's critical. And therein lies the rub. On a global scale, vaccine nationalism and hoarding of vaccines became a reality. In our region, Papua New Guinea has become a COVID hotspot, and with their very close and porous northern border with the Australian Torres Strait Islands, another threat to us here in Australia. Our capacity to provide vaccines to our nearest neighbour is limited until a stronger vaccine supply chain consolidates. That includes importations and local 
AstraZeneca manufacture. A theme we've raised a few times in earlier podcasts in this series, the susceptibility and role of children to being infected and infecting other children and adults has become more prominent. Children were well represented in the chains of infection during the latest Victorian coronavirus outbreak, and as we've seen, also in this current New South Wales outbreak. This plays into the wider and vexed political debate around closing schools and the vulnerability of especially unvaccinated teachers. Certainly in Australia, the political debate around eventually opening up and living with COVID is intensifying. Australia's external borders are set for opening again in possibly mid-2022. But two factors throw that aspiration into doubt. Firstly, the very slow and disjointed vaccination rollout that seems in no way able to meet the fully vaccinated deadline. That slowness and logistical incompetence is amplified by the federal government of Prime Minister Scott Morrison keeping well away from projecting a fully modelled vaccine-induced herd immunity target. Effectively, we're heading into a future with no compass and no clear national destination. That is a grand political failure at the federal level here in Australia. A related aspect of that vaccination failure is the Australian federal government's stubborn reluctance to fund, design and build dedicated quarantine facilities around the country. It is constitutionally a Commonwealth responsibility. But as an emergency stopgap measure in early 2020, Scott Morrison arranged for the states to carry that burden using tourist hotels. Those inadequate facilities have been consistently the source of viral escapes and outbreaks, and that's with closed borders. What will happen with an under-vaccinated population, leaky hotel quarantine in mainly inner-city settings, and fully open external borders? That's a question that looms over all of us. To answer these and other frequently asked questions, or at least to define their implications more clearly, epidemiologist Professor John Potter joins us again in the Transit Zone from Nelson in New Zealand. John, welcome back to The Zone. Peter, how are you? Very well, though, on tenterhooks here, even in Melbourne this morning. We're really watching Sydney this morning and New South Wales, waiting for their Premier Gladys Berejiklian to come out and tell us the latest. Their Agricultural Minister has tested positive for COVID, invaded their Parliament, and uh, as we said, it is the Delta variant. It seems to be ripping around the place there in Sydney. So we'll keep an eye on it during our recording this morning and see if anything happens. Sounds uh, like we are again in some considerable tangle, even with the bubble that Order work between Australia and New Zealand. As you know, we've got one case that arrived from Sydney in Wellington and spent less than three days in Wellington, but actually spent quite a bit of time in some fairly crowded places, including the National Museum. So we're waiting to see whether there was any further spread, and that we're not even sure yet whether it's the Delta variant, but almost certainly is and whether their spread is still a matter of conjecture. We haven't got any positive tests yet. And of course, as we've said over and over again, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, has no political affiliations. It doesn't care whether it's Labour or Liberal or the Nationals or the Greens. It doesn't care about state borders. It's only got one main aim in its life, in inverted commas, and that's finding a human host to, to burrow into a cell and replicate and replicate. So all the argy-bargy about what state is doing what. And of course, Jacinda Ardern, historically, has been a, a go-early-go-hard Prime Minister. Gladys Berejiklian does not accept that sort of approach. And of course, the school holidays, people were ready to head off on the road, take their kids and their pets and their boogie boards off to uh, have a holiday. So that's been stopped in its tracks as well for many in Sydney, especially. So John, let's 
Let's dive right into some of these frequently asked questions. As you're probably aware, the whole idea of a variant, we did touch on this in our earlier podcast, but things have changed and new variants emerged, particularly coming out of India, the Kappa and the Delta variant. So how has the SARS-CoV-2 virus evolved? Has the process accelerated? And when we talk about these new variants being more infectious, and everyone seems to be accepting that, what do we mean by more infectious? Although the SARS-CoV-2 virus does not mutate as rapidly as, say, flu viruses, genetic variants of SARS-CoV-2 have been emerging and circulating around the world essentially since the beginning of the pandemic. Those mutations and variants are routinely monitored through sequence-based surveillance, lab studies, epidemiologic investigations. And CDC um, in the US has now set up a sort of three-part classification, variants of interest, variants of concern, and variants of high consequence. WHO introduced the Greek letter naming system to rationalise what had been quite chaotic naming systems around, and to reduce the apparent blame that some countries felt when somebody spoke about the South African variant or the Brazilian variant, whatever. So the alpha, beta, gamma, epsilon, and delta variants are classified as variants of concern. In the United States, there are currently no variants of high consequence, but the Delta variant is very infectious. We can talk about that in a minute, and currently the most worrying. Lab studies suggest that antibody treatments may be less effective for treating some of the COVID-19 that are caused by variants with specific mutations in the spike proteins. But this is not yet troubling in relation to the vaccines. One of the things you mentioned was the fact that Delta and Kappa both emerged from India. But in fact, the Delta has essentially run over the, the Kappa. Kappa is, is not a major player now, whereas Delta has become one. So in relation to infectiousness. Are there data on infectiousness? Yeah. We discussed originally that the the alpha and beta forms, so that was originally the British and the South African versions, were designated as being 50% more infectious than the initial Wuhan strain. So that meant that the R naught went from about two to three. So anyone who was infected, infected not two people, but three. And as we we talked about, if you think about that as a series of cycles, it doesn't sound when you say, oh, it's 50% more infectious, it doesn't sound a problem. But to repeat what we worked our way through previously, if you think about 15 cycles when the R0 is two, you end up with about 32, 33,000 cases. But if the R0 is three, you end up with 14 million cases. So that was the initial step that went from the Wuhan virus to the, say, the British virus, the alpha. Then along comes Delta, and Delta is now established to be about 60% more infectious than the alpha. And that means the R0 is going essentially from 3 to 5. So again, if you think about 2 to the 15th, R0 of 2, 15 cycles, again, you've got 32, 33,000. But if it goes to five, it's actually well over a billion. And 
essentially you're, you're dealing with approaching the ability to infect the whole world in that sort of time. And that's why Delta is moving so fast in so many places. It's very, very infectious. There does look like there's an approximate doubling of risk of hospitalization for Delta compared with Alpha as well. But, and this is the good news, the vaxxers seem to be working. The vaccines are generally working even against these later variants. There are, as I mentioned, more problems with treatment, but not as yet anyway with vaccination. John, you've been describing that infectiousness epidemiologically. But what about biologically? Take us below the hood here. We're starting to use our imagination in some ways about these viruses. I'm seeing some politicians describe this Delta variant as a long jump champion. We're getting the the language now about fleeting contact, which we'll delve into a little deeper in just a moment. But biologically, how are they more infectious? Well, actually, the, the best description does come to us thinking about it from the population point of view, and there's a simple logic to it. If a mutation makes a virus better able to infect people because it's got a slightly improved capacity in the spike protein for burrowing into cells, or it's better able to reproduce itself once it's in those cells, then as the virus bursts out and spreads, that strain will now be present in bigger numbers and therefore spread more readily through the next cycle of infections and so on. So it's, it's from the virus's point of view, it's a virtuous cycle. From our point of view, it's a vicious cycle. And that's why we're seeing the Delta variant become so rapidly spread. It's become dominant very rapidly and almost everywhere. But there's no logic to say that the disease will be worse, although it does look like with Delta the hospitalizations are more common. There's no logic to say the disease will be worse, although there's a logic to say that the mutation is always going to be towards a more infectious version. In fact, you can see that if a virus doesn't make someone really sick, then they're going to be wandering around. They can spread it more easily because that person's walking around unless they're confined to isolation or quarantine. In fact, the, you know, the, the virus could put itself out of business, as it were, if it became too lethal. But Delta does look like it causes more hospitalizations, and some variants are, are more resistant to treatment with the antibody therapies that are being best used. Increased infectiousness is, is essentially the way the, the virus evolves, and that's the kind of direction it has to head. Increase in uh, lethality or even severity isn't a lock and some of the variants have been more infectious but not more lethal. This one looks like it's a bit of a problem in both directions. Just to recap then from our earlier conversations we're seeing the same spectrum of symptoms are we with this Delta variant from asymptomatic right through to really seriously sick and dying. And dying yes. So we do still have those asymptomatics out there with the Delta variant. The spectrum of infection is exactly as you've described, um, and particularly in younger people, you tend to get you intend to get fewer symptoms, and that's partly probably due to the number of comorbid uh, pre-existing conditions that exist for as we get older. But young people are being infected and affected more, um, perhaps with Delta, although 
it's not entirely clear that that's absolutely true, and we can talk about that in a bit if you want. Actual contact time. Remember some of those earlier restrictions where people were allowed to go for a certain amount of time to a hairdresser with a certain number of people around them? Some of that seems to be going out the window now. We're into this realm of fleeting contact, people just walking past a, a cafe table or going past the doors of a supermarket. Outdoors, we've seen some of that happening with these latest outbreaks in New South Wales and Victoria. How do you perceive this term fleeting contact? Is it just the aerosols which we've had all along and that earlier reluctance to accept that it was about fine aerosols? The big focus was on keeping clean hands and residues from the virus. Is that just a greater acceptance now and we're seeing that being enacted in the real world, the aerosol effect? Yes, I think that explains a lot of it, although it might be the case given that this is more infectious, that part of the reason it's more infectious is because any one person actually has a higher viral load and therefore spreads a higher viral load. And if that's coupled with aerosolization and somebody walks through a sick person's aerosol, even briefly and even at distance in time, the aerosol will hang around. There may be sufficient to infect that next person. That's almost certainly what's going on, but I don't think it's been absolutely established. We're certainly dealing with the idea of the fleeting contact, but we're also seeing another pattern. It's almost the opposite of that pattern, where they're doing their tracking and tracing. Somebody's gone into a particular establishment, a shop or a a takeaway chicken shop or something, and people haven't been infected, even though that person visited perhaps for quite a long time or sat in a cafe. So we're seeing both ends of the spectrum here. We're seeing fleeting contact transmission, but we're also seeing, thankfully, not so strong transmission within locations where you might expect it to happen. This has always been the picture, though, with this virus, and it's probably just the, the problem of stochastic events. It looks as though when you've got super spreaders that there really are super spreader individuals. Yes, there are super spreader events, but there are, look like there are. So although we, we talk about an R naught as, as two or three or five, um, in reality, that's spread out over a whole spectrum of people. And uh, it may well be that something like 80% of the spread is, is actually done by about 20% of the people. That's the kind of thing that often happens with these sorts of systems and it's probably something like that and that may be partly due to the the spreader and partly due to the recipient. I think the dynamics of that are still well to be worked out. You alluded a moment ago to evolution and the direction of the evolution of a virus like this becoming more infectious because of the very nature of of evolution and competing with other viruses etc. But let's go a little deeper into that. What does the history of virology tell us about where things might go from here? Because of all the science fiction we read, we imagine that we might get a virus that's a true monster that's just not something we can deal with at all. Is that possible with this virus? Is that the direction we're talking about? Or are there limiting factors here within the evolutionary process? No real data on this. You could imagine a major transformation But it could be one that completely ruins the virus's capacity to make the spike protein and thus make it utterly ineffective as a virus. But if that happened, we wouldn't see it because that virus wouldn't have any consequences. That would be a a null virus, if you like. Now, whether going in the opposite direction to acquire even more capacity for invasion or damage is not clear to me. You could imagine 
Also, that it could become so lethal that it puts itself out of business, I suppose. This is all just, just speculation. The, the Delta looks pretty monstrous to me right now, although we've got vaccines that are still holding the line on it, that some of the treatments have become a little more problematic. Already, we're talking about more infectious, but something worth underscoring in this conversation again, John, is just how this particular virus is able to invade all sorts of cells within the body. It's not a respiratory disease. It seems to be able to invade cells of all kinds within the human body, hence the sort of symptoms we're getting. Right, and that's because the way in which the spike protein interacts with cells is through mostly the ACE2 receptor, and ACE2 receptors are all over the place. And that has consequences not only for the nature of the initial disease, but the nature of the long COVID symptoms too, the folks who end up with not just an acute infection, but end up with symptoms prolonged over considerable periods of time. We're sitting here concerned about viruses, and particularly SARS-CoV-2. But as most of us probably don't think about every day, the world is full of fungal spores. The fungus is everywhere within our lives and in our bodies too. And I guess most of the time we fight it off, but I have had relatives even who have have got very sick and within our family and have been invaded by a particular fungus. But we're seeing what's been called the black fungus in Indian populations, and it seems to be associated with COVID in some way. What is that fungus? What's causing that explosion of fungus within Indian patients? Right. So this is mucormycosis. It's a known disease in India, particularly. It's usually rare, even in India. It's now still rare, but it's popping up in much greater numbers, relatively speaking. It invades eyes and nasal passages and brains. It can be treated with an antifungal agent called amphotericin B, But because it presents late, usually, in India, much more commonly surgery, and so you've got lots of folks who are doing removal of eyes or major surgery on nasal passages and so on. The causes for this, what you might think of as a secondary epidemic, some people call it a syndemic, S-Y-N-demic. They're unclear, but probably relate to immune suppression from the use of steroids to control the cytokine storm that some people experience, possibly from the virus itself, some degree of immune suppression. Diabetes, very common in India, is also likely to be a a part of this story. At the moment, it's mostly a problem in India. The reason for that is not entirely clear, but it might be this combination of this particular diabetes in in combination with a country where the particular fungus is actually found more commonly than elsewhere. Some of us have noted, particularly during an earlier season, when they had an outbreak in Sydney, for example, in their northern beaches, and we had an outbreak in Melbourne, the Melbourne ones seemed to get away faster and we needed many more measures against it. And we sat and watched Sydney thinking, why isn't it spreading faster in Sydney? And some of the speculation was around humidity, temperature, the very climate may shape the way the virus spreads within particular cities like Melbourne and Sydney. Is there any data on that about hot and cold, humidity, and other climactic forces at work on the spread of the virus? There's a little bit. Um, There's some data to suggest that higher temperatures and maybe higher humidity reduce spread. But the contribution to the variance in rates and the studies that have been done seem to be pretty small. There's an interesting study out of 
Italy early on, when, if you remember, Italy was one of the places, northern Italy got hit very hard. One of the studies from there suggested a role for particulate matter air pollution that might be a player here, perhaps because it carried the virus on particles for a long period of time. So there's something going on, but it doesn't look like it's a major player and it doesn't look like there's enough there to produce the kind of seasonal regression that we see with influenza, for instance. And that's that's consistent with what we've observed, right? It's a summer disease, it's a winter disease, COVID-19. I suppose it's worth a comment that conversely, if you like, the pandemic very briefly slowed the rate of progression of CO2 growth in the atmosphere, but it was only very brief and it doesn't look like we've slowed climate change down very much, even with a year of pandemic. Well, this Delta variant certainly already and very quickly has a very bad reputation, the way you've been talking about it during this podcast. But also worth noting the role of aviation again and the fact that aviation, it just stares us in the face, doesn't it, by the fact that it flies from country to country and within those aircraft themselves. But Delta is already all over the world again, 80-plus countries. That happened very quickly, and it's become the dominant variant. That's very significant, isn't it? It is, and it's for the reasons we've just been talking about. It clearly has an evolutionary advantage, and in some sense that's just the empirical observation that you know, you can see what it's doing. It was interesting a moment ago, you said, oh, Kappa's not really in the race anymore. You know, Kappa was the one that started the, the recent Melbourne outbreak, and then Delta arrived, and, and that's the one they're dealing with right now as we speak in Sydney. I mentioned in the introduction the angst we're suffering here in Australia around the vaccination program, and perhaps you'd like to comment, it's pretty slow in New Zealand as well, and we can now delve into trying to analyse just why that is the case. We've got lots of factors here in Australia, complacency and that complacency induced by our very low rate of infections may be part of this picture. But let's talk about AstraZeneca because that's been one of the disruptors here in Australia. Is the actual function of the AstraZeneca vaccine at that biological level connected to the occurrence of the blood clotting events we've seen? Is there in fact a cause and effect relationship with AstraZeneca and blood clotting? There probably is. The evidence seems to be that it it turns up more often with AstraZeneca than it does with and with the Johnson and Johnson and so those are both adenovirus carried vaccines there's a preprint paper from a group led by Rolf Marschalek at the Institute of Pharmaceutical Biology at the Goethe University in Frankfurt and it seems to me that they probably have this right as an explanation for why the clotting occurs The spike protein, the spike protein on the virus, is responsible for both the recognition of the host cell membrane receptors, including the ACE2, and for enabling the fusion with the membranes of our cells. The RNA of SARS-CoV-2 is translated and replicated only in the cytosol of the infected cells, the body of the cell, not the nucleus. And thus evolution of the coronaviruses other coronaviruses too, has always taken place in the cytosol of the specific cells that it invades. With the adenovirus-delivered vaccines, including AstraZeneca, but also Johnson & Johnson, the SARS-CoV-2 spike gene will first of all be transcribed from the DNA that's been inserted into the nucleus of our cells, 
and then subsequently exported as messenger RNA into the cytosol. And there it'll be translated into the spike protein as just described. This is the problem. The viral piece of DNA that's included in the AstraZeneca vaccine, derived as it is from an RNA vaccine, is not optimized to be transcribed inside the nucleus. It's used to being transcribed only in the cytosol. And what happens is, and this was the hypothesis these guys worked with and then produced a whole lot of evidence to show that it was true, it enables what's called alternative splice events. And most of those produce shorter proteins because what would have been a whole spike protein is now missing the bit that anchors it to the cell membrane. That means you've got a soluble spike protein that can float free of the cell. So this group of researchers in Germany hypothesized that that's what was going on, and then they subsequently showed that these unwanted splice reactions actually occur, and they actually do create short soluble spike proteins. Those soluble spike proteins cause adverse effects, for example, a strong inflammatory response, and initiate severe side effects when they bind to the ACE2 receptors on the cells that line the blood vessels and that triggers the clotting response. The evidence from their work looks to me pretty impeccable, but it's currently not yet peer-reviewed. It's a preprint, so we don't know for sure that they got this right, but it's the best explanation that's going at the moment. Nonetheless, the clotting's still a pretty uncommon event. In the Scottish study, the first dose of the AstraZeneca was found to be associated with a small increased risk of what is described as idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. It's the clotting disorder. It's a generic name for clotting disorder. But they had evidence of arterial clotting and hemorrhagic events. But it occurs in about one person for every 100,000 doses of the vaccine delivered. To contrast it and to reinforce the fact that this really is to do with the nature of the way in which the vaccine is built. There's no excess risk of the Pfizer vaccine of any of those events. Are there other side effects perhaps from Pfizer or from AstraZeneca beyond the blood clotting that we're seeing? And we're seeing these justifications about underlying pre-existing conditions with some of the patients who have been affected by the blood clotting events. Is that misleading? I mean, certainly people who've had a history of blood clots may well be at higher risk. The evidence seems to be there, but whether it's absolutely locked down, I'm not sure. The Pfizer's interesting because it, and the Moderna, which is you know used in, in the US, they're both the mRNA vaccines. They are both relatively highly effective and relatively free at the moment anyway, of adverse responses. Well, John, now that the real world vaccination programs are operating very widely, look at the United States, who would have thought getting their vaccination up to the levels they have. That's been quite remarkable since President Joe Biden took office there. Now that they're operating around the world, what's the data that's coming in to those monitoring all this showing about efficacy overall? Did I see in the United Kingdom, for example, there was a drop in hospitalizations? What's the overall readout on vaccinations around the world? As you say, the overall readout looks actually very encouraging. The first studies we're in Israel, where close to 90% of people aged 60 and older in the country have received their first dose. They saw a 40% drop, 
in confirmed infections in in the age group that received the vaccine and a 31% drop in hospitalizations this was this was back in January February uh, in comparison for people aged 59 and younger of only 30% had been vaccinated at that point the cases dropped by only 12% and hospitalizations by about 5% over that same time. So first, you see an impact on population very early on from this study that was uh, done in Israel. And importantly and interestingly, because I think this carries over to other considerations and it also echoes back to where we were before, the first Pfizer dose, the viral load was substantially reduced, even in people who did get infected 12 to 35 days after the first dose, the viral load was substantially reduced in those people who had been vaccinated but still got an infection. Vaccine effectiveness in in a bunch of US health workers with full immunization of two doses of the mRNA vaccines, 90%. In Scotland, we're seeing similar sorts of measures. Uh, They've got well over a million people vaccinated and the vaccine effect for the Pfizer dose was about 90% and the uh, AstraZeneca was about 88. So it's very similar. And they found that it was effective in old people as well, over 80. So the mass rollout of the first doses of Pfizer and AstraZeneca was associated with substantial reductions in risk of hospitalization in Scotland. The Johnson & Johnson effectiveness is, is a bit lower, 75-80% in preventing uh, the infection. So the real world experience with this looks very much like the trial data. Do you agree with me, John, that many citizens, when they heard the word vaccine, faced with the threat of a viral pandemic, went back to their experience of vaccines with other diseases and assumed that if they were vaccinated, they were going to be protected from the virus. We know that's not the case with this particular virus, but it is with others. Is the term sterilizing immunity, it stops a particular pathogen actually invading you. That's not happening with this particular virus. So it's intriguing just to delve in a little more deeply to see how across populations, we're seeing a dropping of infection, but at an individual level, you or I can be fully vaccinated and can be infected and can pass it on to other people. We just saw an African athlete arrive in Tokyo fully vaccinated, but testing positive and presumably to some degree infectious. So we've got the grand population view of things. How does vaccination actually lower. Is it about viral loads? You've used that phrase quite a lot. Is it essentially about viral loads or are there other biological factors at work as well? That's the one that's best evidenced, I think. As we just mentioned in Israel, the first Pfizer dose, the viral load was substantially reduced for infections that did occur. And there's some nice population evidence also. As vaccine uptake increases, the number of cases and the severity of cases too also drops. You mentioned the UK, but I'll give you the US because the US is, you know, massively contrasting behaviours going on there. And the cases are rising in counties where the vaccine uptake is below 20% and they're falling where vaccination rates are above 40%. So the The vaccination is having an impact at a population level, almost certainly to do with reduced viral load in any one individual, even if they happen to then become briefly infected. 
something that's on our minds, and you've already alluded to it, how effectively are the vaccines we've been injected with handling the emerging variants? We know Delta's the one in front of us at the moment, but inevitably there'll be another one coming fairly soon, I suspect. Are the current vaccines handling the variants we already have? What's the data on that? And will they handle emerging variants? That's the big question. Some people are talking about tweaking the vaccines, perhaps getting booster shots, though that's perhaps more to do with duration of immunity as well as uh, variants. Booster shots, are they inevitable to handle declining immunity from the original vaccination? And how will they handle the variants we're seeing emerging? So far, the vaccines are holding up well against the variants. And in some sense, it's not entirely surprising as the target of the mRNA vaccines, for instance, and also most of the others, um, is the spike protein. It might be a wider spectrum of targets for some of the vaccines, but mRNA vaccines, the spike protein is the target. That's the key to viruses' capacity to enter the cell. So the vaccine is going to be associated with holding up effectiveness even as you get some mutations in that spike protein. Now, it's possible that the spike protein could mutate out of the target range of the vaccines and still be effective from the virus's point of view. It could still be an effective virus, not what we want. But it hasn't happened so far. It has happened, as we mentioned, that some of the antibody therapies are less effective because their target is even smaller. So that's a cause of worry. It might occur for the vaccines, but at the moment, it's not a problem. And the vaccines can be tweaked to match the mutations. And there's work going on on that to, as it were, fine-tune to whatever mutations have occurred. And such new versions of the vaccines could be used as primary vaccines down the line or as boosters to those who have already been vaccinated. And then in relation to the duration, at present the immune system is responding really well, particularly, for instance, longer-lived memory cells in the immune system that look like they're holding the response capacity well. But we're only a year and a half into a pandemic, so it may change. But as with the other vaccines, like tetanus, for instance, we might need a booster later in life. Both of those possibilities exist for vaccine boosters, but at the moment, we're doing okay with the vaccines, it seems to me. John, who would have thought that we'd be using the term mixing and matching about vaccines? But we are mixing and matching. It's become a bit of a thing here in Australia because of that backflip on AstraZeneca and the age cohort that it was applicable to knocking out the the 50 to 60s out of that cohort just in the last week or so as we record this podcast. So mixing and matching, people are saying, I had AstraZeneca, should I get Pfizer now? Is that good? Is that bad? Will that be better? Will that be worse? And of course, the health authorities are going, oh dear, Uh, no, stay with AstraZeneca, please, at this point. But we're also seeing some talk of perhaps later on mixing and matching being efficacious and perhaps boosting the overall efficacy of the vaccines, having a bit of Pfizer, having a bit of Moderna, having a bit of AstraZeneca, who knows? And we've already discussed biologically how they differ quite fundamentally, really, in how they operate within our bodies. So the mixing and matching, what's your take on that? So there's a Spanish study which delivered Pfizer as a second dose to individuals who were prime vaccinated with AstraZeneca, and it induced a a robust immune response. And then there are a couple of German studies where, again, the two vaccines 
in the same order as the Spanish study, but now spread out to 10 to 12 weeks rather than three. And that produced spike antibodies at levels comparable to the control group that had received two doses of Pfizer at the standard three-week interval. And there was no increase in side effects. And even more encouraging in the German study, T-cells, which can boost antibody response and help the body rid of already infected cells, responded slightly better to spike than fully vaccinated Pfizer recipients. So all of the evidence says it's an upside, not a downside to mix and match, at least at present. There's a study underway in the UK, but I don't think it's reported back yet. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark. And with us in Nelson, New Zealand, epidemiologist Professor John Potter. This is the Frequently Asked Questions edition of the Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast series. Let's talk about vaccine-induced herd immunity. We talked earlier in our conversations during the series of podcasts about herd immunity and how that was seen perhaps in the United Kingdom and other places as something, Sweden was another example perhaps, where let her run and let's reach herd immunity. But now we're talking about vaccine-induced herd immunity. Now, the Scott Morrison government is very target-averse. They don't want to know about a herd immunity target. They don't really want to talk about targets at all. I've heard it mentioned that 75 to 80% seems the mooted level of population vaccination coverage to achieve induced vaccine herd immunity. Is that a clear figure at this point? We're running at about 5% at the moment in this country with fully vaccinated people. We're talking about opening up our borders sometime next year. Who knows whether that will happen and what will happen with our quarantine facilities? That's a a glaring problem we have. But herd immunity, vaccine-induced, do you agree that there should be a target? Is it possible for health advisors to provide that target? Would that be useful to turbocharge the vaccination program would at least know where we're supposed to be heading and have a destination. The herd immunity induced by vaccination and having a target for that. So the 70 to 90 percent always makes sense when you model the possibility of transmission because as we've discussed population can be categorized into those who are immune either because they've had a vaccine or their previous infection. Those who are susceptible to becoming infected and those who have the virus infection. The more immune people there are, the fewer the number of people there are for the transmission from the affected to the susceptible. It's just a matter of how many targets there are in your immediate vicinity, if you think about it. The question of a policy-driven target towards herd immunity is just a really vexed question. Tony Blakely at University of Melbourne is currently working on what the range of the options is and what the implications are of those options. I think his work, and it may well be out within uh, a week or two, I think that will give us a much better idea about having a policy direction and a hard target to aim at. At the moment, it's all just as your guess is as good as mine. Tony's work is likely to give us at least some boundaries and the conditions under which this will work or that will work or the other will work and then what are the consequences if we choose this target versus that target it's coming yes but let's just go back to that idea what do you mean by immune it doesn't mean you're not going to be infected and it doesn't mean you're going to be not infectious to other people so what is this herd immunity actually all about i don't at that level i don't completely understand the thinking here 
And you raise the proper question, and I don't know what the answer is. Perhaps there is no herd immunity. We know that herd immunity exists. In fact, almost all herd immunity that we absolutely establish has been induced by vaccination. And it's usually in animals, actually. Immunise a herd against, say, tuberculosis in the cattle. Hence the name. That's where it came from. It came from animal, came from veterinary medicine rather than human medicine. As I said, this is a vexed question, and I don't think there's an easy answer to it. But clearly, the more people who are vaccinated, the lower the risk of the spread and the lower risk of hospitalisation and death. That we do know for sure. We talked about vaccine nationalism, didn't we, earlier? And perhaps it's emerged as an uglier syndrome than we might have imagined earlier. It's clearly a factor. And we're seeing a hoarding, we're seeing a concentration of vaccine holdings within developed and affluent countries. We see other developing countries, perhaps like South Africa, crying out for vaccine. Various African countries really wanting some sort of supply, and they're just not getting it at the moment. And we're seeing increased infections and deaths in those countries. What are the actual prospects in your view, John, as an epidemiologist, for reaching that overall goal of vaccinating the world. This is, after all, a pandemic, and particularly developing countries and some of the developed countries that need the vaccine as well. Like us, we're in short supply here in Australia, and perhaps you are in New Zealand as well. So what are the prospects for vaccinating the world? Nationalism is a real problem, more generally, rather than just in relation to here. My country first. But there are encouraging signs from the US and then from the G7 about improving availability for low and middle income countries. So there are pledges about billion doses, etc., etc. Better would be to improve manufacturing capacity in low and middle income countries. And as has been done with much wrangling and wrestling across the world, as was done with HIV therapies, allow these vaccines to be manufactured in places and ways that benefit those at risk in low and middle income countries, and also not allowing the profits to be exported back to the rich countries. So this is the direction to go in, whether the world has the capacity to think that through and realise that if we are really going to vaccinate the whole world, this is the way we have to do it. But refusal and hesitancy are going to be a problem everywhere. Your guess about how this will play out is probably better than mine. You have a better grasp on the political infirmities of our race. As you and I watched, John, the United States, the United Kingdom and other jurisdictions move towards approval of their various vaccines, we also watched Russia and China move through quite a different process of approval and rush their, some of their vaccines through. And particularly in China, it seems to be working, though I've also read reports that they've got quite low efficacy. And they're distributing that vaccine to some of the countries that are dependent on them in various ways. Russia is the same. So what do we know about how China's vaccines are operating within that jurisdiction? Two vaccines made in Beijing, one in a state-owned firm, Sinopharm, and then a vaccine called Coronavac, which is produced by a private company, Sinovac. So Sinopharm and Sinovac's vaccines account for the bulk of the jabs that have been given in China, and they've inoculated several hundred million people now. They had to be trialled elsewhere because the country did not have enough community transmission itself to conduct them. Trials of, of Coronavac from Brazil and 
Turkey revealed efficacy figures that varied quite a bit, as you just suggested. Brazil was uh, about only just above 50%, and but Turkey was over 80%. And then results from an analysis following mass vaccinations in Chile, about 67%, so somewhere in the middle. There's a, a UAE study of the Sinopharm vaccine that had more than 30,000 people, showed the vaccine was 86% effective in preventing infection after two shots with no deaths among immunized, immunized individuals. Combined efficacy over a bunch of countries for the Sinopharm is about 78%. They have become major players, both, both these vaccines, in low and middle income countries. At least 50 countries have already approved their use, but there are even more that are using them. Yes, there are grumbles in, in some places. Maybe that's a different version of vaccine nationalism. At the moment, at least, they seem to be doing the job as well as many of the other vaccines. We've been saying, haven't we, Australia, New Zealand, shining examples of elimination of community transmission. But China, Wuhan, I think they had another quick little outbreak. They've had other little outbreaks. But you talked about lack of community transmission in that vast country of well over a billion people. So they did that, not through vaccination. They did that by incredibly rigorous, even draconian lockdowns, etc. Absolutely, yes. John, in the latest Victorian outbreak, children have figured quite prominently in the chains of infection sequences, as you probably saw. What's the latest research on how the virus may infect children? with the spotlight on the Delta variant, and how readily are they infecting adults? There's a paper in Science, actually, just earlier this month, 4th of June, and it involved an online survey across 50 states of the US. And it's actually encouraging for those of us who are worried most about the use of proper public health measures. They looked in this study at mitigation measures, student mask mandates, teacher mask mandates, restricted entry to schools, you know, no parents or caregivers, extra space between desks, no supply sharing, teaching the same students, reduced class sizes. And what they found was that there was a positive association between in-person schooling and COVID-19 transmission to adults, and it persisted at low levels of mitigation but where seven or more mitigation measures were in place, there was no transmission from children to adults. The conclusion of that study is that in-person schooling carries an increased COVID-19 risk to household members, but common low-risk mitigation can reduce that risk. By mitigation, you're talking about masks. Interestingly, I saw on television the other night an affluent Asian wedding with lots of kids there of course, at the wedding, and all those kids wearing little masks, little decorated masks. But we don't see that in Australia. You rarely see young children here, I've hardly ever seen it here, wearing masks. And then perhaps younger adolescents, adolescents, you start to see them wearing masks. That's one of the major mitigation measures you're talking about? Yes. There was both the student masks, mandates at the schools, mandates for where the students wearing masks, mandates at the, for the teachers wearing masks, etc. Those were, were key elements of, of that mitigation. So we are seeing more children infected. That's been the case all along. We've, in Australia, we've had families who have been infected by their children, have gone to other houses for overnights and come back infected and passed it on to the adults. And that's been part of chains of infection. We've seen that all along. 
But just to emphasize, is Delta more heavily involved now with infecting children? That is rumored. But there's a report actually in the BMJ from June 15th that asked, are more children becoming ill? There are no official figures on this, although members of the Scottish government have been said saying children more at risk with COVID-19 and many had been admitted to hospital. This report quoted a consultant paediatrician at Royal Aberdeen Children's, this doc said, as it stands, there are very few children in hospital in Scotland and across the whole of the UK due to COVID. Very small number of admissions test positive for COVID and Children get tested usually because they've come in for something else, like broken bone or something. And then he he said, at the moment, the situation in the UK is stable. The number of children in hospital with COVID remains very low. So there's a suspicion that the Delta variant may be a greater problem for young people. At the moment, there seem to be no compelling data to support it. You did mention in an earlier podcast in this Pandemic Primer podcast series that children have a higher viral load or a higher viral load has been detected in children. That's still a factor? I haven't seen any other data that changed what we talked about before. Now, what other effects on children? Are there equivalents to something we're going to be exploring in a moment, the chronic effects of COVID, long COVID, we've come to call it? What about children, are we seeing various other effects, other other symptoms in children from the virus? So there's a clinical syndrome that was first uh, described in children, which is now known as multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, MISC. Multi-organ dysfunction, systemic inflammation, it's part of this cytokine storm process where you get an immune response that is way overboard on what the body needs to get rid of the virus and actually attacks the body. There's a huge CDC cohort study where this was rare complication in in persons younger than 21 years old. So the overall incidence was 316 per million infections, but it was higher among African-Americans, Hispanics, Latinos, and Asian and Pacific Islanders. Reasons? Unclear, but probably related to underlying health conditions. That's the acute syndrome that can occur in children. There are chronic impacts that look a lot like long COVID, and there are only a handful of studies on children. They're all, they're all just case reports. There are very few data on long-term impacts. What is the actual age threshold or plural thresholds when children stopping, children become younger adolescents and then those adolescents become adults when we try to apply restrictions and measures like face masks? Should all kids just be wearing face masks anyway? Is that boundary shifting as we gain more knowledge? And I notice in terms of vaccination that there in New Zealand that they've given provisional approval for Pfizer vaccine to be injected into 12 to 15 year olds. That's interesting. And that whole question of do we vaccinate all the kids and adolescents eventually? So what are the thresholds? How do we determine those thresholds? I don't know the answer to this. That's a that's a policy decision without a lot of clear data help on the masking side. But a piece of empirical evidence, the stuff that we just talked about on that US study, suggested that children wearing masks may contribute to protecting adults. They almost certainly contribute to protecting themselves too in the same way that they do adults. But I mean, at the moment, all of those decisions about who to vaccinate, who to protect, who to control, who to mask, they're policy decisions often made without a lot of data. I want to return now to perhaps the bee I have in my bonnet about 
the loopholes within this whole process, particularly quarantine, vaccination, testing, that gap between infection and detectability by the tests we have at the moment has caused some problems here in Australia, as you've seen in WA, in South Australia, people are tested on day 12, released on day 14, head out into the community and start infecting people because they are in fact positive. So the question to you is, are tourist hotels ultimately sustainable as physical environments and via the protocols they're currently using in those hotels as effective fail-safe quarantine facilities into our future? Thinking about opening up New Zealand and Australia to external incoming passengers who may be a variable status in terms of whether they're vaccinated or unvaccinated in the countries they're coming from. Can we stay with the tourist hotels or do we really need much more purpose-built, purpose-designed and dedicated quarantine facilities? Your question answers that. No, we need border management that includes dedicated, purpose-built exclusion and quarantine facilities and they need to be built soon. There's an even stronger need if borders are open more widely. My own view is that borders should not be open before we have a very, very high vaccination completion rate. Can I take you back to what we were talking about with the variants? We talked about their infectiousness. Could they change their profile in terms of we've accepted the 14-day quarantine? It's a little bit variable in other jurisdictions, but we're using the 14-day. Could that change? Could we suddenly find that an emerging variant requires longer in quarantine or is tricking us in terms of those windows of infection and detectability of the virus within an individual patient? They could, but I know of no evidence that tells us that at the moment. Part of the problem with when do we test and when do we accept the outcome of the test and when should people be allowed to travel and so on and so on. I mean, part of the problem with that, and I think you've called them, you know, sort of loopholes, if you like, in the testing sequence. All we have to do is remember all of these things. Tests have errors both false positives, but more important for this discussion, false negatives. The vaccines are not 100% effective against any disease at all, although they markedly reduce hospitalisation and death. People are not always reliable or truthful. People are not always focused on doing the best for the community or the country they live in. People make mistakes. Systems make mistakes. And all of that, to me, means that we go back to, the, to continue the vaccination but maintain all of our public health measures, border management, including purpose-built quarantine exclusion facilities, case identification, contact tracing, using all the possible digital tweaks we can do to that, disease surveillance, sentinel surveillance, wastewater surveillance, then the use of things like physical distancing, making sure we've got public communication about what the best things are to be doing, protecting vulnerable populations, improving health system capacity. Wellington's just been struggling with cranking back up its testing sequence because suddenly we had a problem. And then in the end, also importantly, very importantly, protecting healthcare workers and border workers. All of those things are a part of how we should be responding to this in order to reduce the likelihood of either imported or spread events. It seems very hard to me to eliminate the loopholes as technology is at the moment. Some people have talked about a follow-up regime where where a person leaves quarantine and they have a bit of a follow-up and have another test, but the loophole keeps recurring. So we're now putting the spotlight back on the testing technology itself. How likely is it now, as you look around the world and looking at the developing technologies in the testing realm, 
that we'll soon have a home test kind of situation where we've really almost closed that gap. It's quick, it's accurate, and it really is timely in terms of telling you now what your status is in terms of positivity. Albeit, of course, there is still that little window between being infected and the detectability. The technology exists, but whether it's entirely fit for purpose is is a policy decision like many of these other things. Such tests might reduce or increase individual anxiety, but for all the public health purposes, we still need formal approved tests and testing stations. We could do them with instantaneous tests, yes, and that's probably a direction we should do our very best to move into. At the moment, nobody seems to be doing that fast enough. I want you to climb into your magical helicopter now and go above the world, look around, use your telescope if you have to, have a look at what's been happening historically. There have been lots of ups and downs. You and I talked about some of the countries that looked like they were performing very well earlier on. Some of them have had setbacks for various reasons. I look around to places like Indonesia. They're going through hell at the moment. Papua New Guinea is in a pretty rough patch at the moment as well. Other countries have had their ups and downs. The United States has obviously pulled back from its very high death toll because of vaccination overall, I suggest. So how do you see the general picture now around the world? We're talking about a pandemic. Which countries have done best? Which countries have slipped back? It's actually reasonably simple. The countries that have done best are in the Asia-Pacific region. And they've done best because they took the threat seriously early on, instituted measures of the sort we've just discussed, And those measures continue to protect us and will continue to protect us. Some of those countries learned from the earlier SARS epidemic, Taiwan, Vietnam. But that history was there because New Zealand sort of got a secondary information from that. And then Australia finally realised New Zealand was doing a good thing. So some of the countries learned from the SARS epidemic. But that history and that lesson were there for all countries to see. And the countries that did worst had chaotic responses to control, the United States, or handed testing, which is a really crucial element in control, over to private sector companies at massive cost who had no understanding of what was needed, the UK, believed it was just like the flu, Sweden, proclaimed it was all a hoax, Brazil, US again, or didn't have enough resources to mount a proper plan, and that's true for many low- and middle-income countries. The successes and failures, the differences... You know, it's interesting that there's an infectious disease physician and microbiologist, Peter Collingham, writing in The Guardian, he's at ANU, and he said Australia needed to eventually adopt a different attitude to what risks it was willing to accept or face the chance of becoming a hermit nation. And he declared that the effective control of covid 19 had left countries like Australia and New Zealand in somewhat of a COVID-19 limbo. And that seems to me to be exactly backwards. What's the rationale for letting the virus in? As Michael Baker said in, in a piece in The Conversation lately, quotes, I don't think we should dismiss COVID-19 as being sufficiently benign that we would be happy to accept it. And for reasons that we've discussed earlier in this podcast, it's more likely the you the virus will mutate in a way that makes it more, not less dangerous. Absolutely key to the right strategy is elimination. Doesn't mean zero COVID because there'll always be a risk of imported cases. What it means is using public health measures and vaccines to stamp out any potential outbreaks. And that's exactly what we do with measles. The loudest voices 
that everyone's listening to are coming from Europe and North America who made a complete pig's breakfast of managing risk assessment and risk management throughout this pandemic. UK's done well with its vaccine rollout because it turned it back to the NHS. The US is doing way better than anyone might have expected, and especially after four years of Trump. But their total public health management strategy has just been rubbish. And the various states are showing different profiles with their vaccination. Exactly. So again, as Michael Baker said, they're imposing their own failed models on places like New Zealand and Australia and the Asia-Pacific region, which has done much better. We need to be very wary about just accepting their failed models, close quote. The US has had more than 600,000 deaths, as you pointed out earlier. And I pointed out to you that China didn't have enough community transmission to enable it to launch vaccine trials in their own country. How often do we hear from experts in China or Singapore or Taiwan? And WHO also tends to take its lead on this and much else from the same countries. Not surprisingly, they've so far failed to provide any goal except let's live with a SARS-CoV-2. How does South Africa fit into that thesis? Because Ramaphosa, their president, locked them down against a lot of objections in South Africa. I know there must be other factors at work there. I think they went down for a month at least, didn't they, in South Africa? Huge suffering involved. India locked down as well. So how do you see those countries where they did take quite drastic action fitting into your thesis? Can't tell you about South Africa. I don't think I understand it. But India, India did a combination of bizarre things because, yes, although they locked things down, what they really did was was drive all the temporary workers out of the cities and out into the country, thereby spreading the virus quite effectively, and then allowing massive assemblies like the Kumbh Mela, which have been enormous virus spreaders in India. And we've just seen something similar happening in Kenya. Kenyatta has been allowing large crowds unmasked. And there's been, just in the, in the last week, there's been a 15% increase in deaths in Africa compared with the previous week. And that's Delta spreading in, in Africa as well. The shutdown isn't the point. It's this whole combination of steps. It's testing, it's tracing, it's masking, it's awareness of the vulnerable, it's protecting the healthcare workers. It's the whole package. It's not just one event, not just one strategy. And, it's, and vaccines are, are really important, but they're not the whole story. That underlying scepticism, which we've seen right from the beginning, it was expressed in various ways. The, and we're still getting it from Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister. My job is to protect lives and to protect livelihoods. And within that binary, we're getting lots of variation. It gives him tons of wiggle room, obviously. He can interpret what's protecting lives and what's protecting livelihoods and which priority to give to what area. But we're seeing living with COVID as another set of code words emerging now. Living with COVID, we just got to accept it and and perhaps let it run and some people will die. Remember early on in the Australian version of the pandemic, a lot of people are arguing, we just let the old people go. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Uh, They can take one for the economy. We seem to have forgotten that, but that was only 12 months ago people were saying something like that. So this living with COVID idea. Again, I'm going to ask you that really tough question. Is it any clearer now in your mind what, I'm going to put this in very large quotes, the end of the pandemic might look like? Is there an end to this pandemic? Is it going to go on with various variants emerging all the time? Will vaccination be the key, plus those other technologies like testing and some of the other measures? 
Is the end of the pandemic even vaguely in sight? Have we passed the beginning of the pandemic? Where are we at along that road? I think what we should keep in mind is that almost everything has changed for the world. It's like we were all in the middle of a war, because we really are. And it's not clear to me that we should, quotes, live with the virus, close quotes. Rather, we should continue with elimination, including widespread vaccination. And now a number of New Zealand voices are beginning to say this. We begin to think about eradication. So we take a step forward into the battle zone rather than a step back. And we begin to think about eradication. We've done it with smallpox. We've done it with two of the three types of polio. We've done it with a cattle disease called rinderpest. We're close with guinea worm. We could get there with measles, mumps and rubella. And we just need to say, that's what we're going to do. And we need to think about how to do that as a united world. Expensive? Yes. Complex? Yes. But what else are we going to do? Retreat and, and live with the dying and the, and the ever-surging virus. Without a united strategy and without learning from this one, we'll be in an even worse mess when the next pandemic hits. Or we could fly to Mars and put up a, a station on Mars. And whether that's harder and, and cheaper or whatever, I mean, there are these competing fantasies, aren't there, as well. But that's a, an enormous project. But perhaps, yes, a project we've got to consider. And a lot of people just reject eradication as a possibility right. with this virus. As you well know, the source of the virus has become very much in the news again. After Trump has gone, people have renewed their attention on the virology lab in Wuhan. been lots of discussion around that. You and I mooted in an earlier podcast whether it was even important to find out the source, and you certainly believed it is. What weight do you give to the various theories about the source of the vaccine now, with the virology lab in Wuhan still in mind? And if we don't find out, factually and convincingly the source of this particular pandemic, this particular global outbreak, what do we lose? The key element is we need to learn the origin of this, not so that we can pillory anybody and not even that we can chase up on perhaps obfuscation and deliberate misleading stuff, if that's in fact what happened. We need to understand the origins so that we are better prepared for the next one. How do you see the various competing theories? At one end of the spectrum with the conspiracy theorists is the idea that China was developing a bioweapon to unleash on the world. Further along the spectrum, that was an accidental escape of viruses they were working on within the Wuhan lab. Of course, we've got the wet market theory, etc. Bats in caves quite a long distance from Wuhan. All those different theories, some of them slightly overlapping. Which ones do you give more credence to? I actually don't think we've got enough evidence to make a decision. There's certainly clear evidence that the Wuhan lab was seriously interested in coronaviruses and had been for quite a few years before this particular outbreak occurred. Whether that's related to the release, I don't know. If it is, we should know about it. If it's not, there should be clear evidence that it's not. Either way, that evidence hasn't fully come out and it will help us understand where the risks lie for the future. The bioweapon story, I give no credence at all to at the moment. I want to finish this conversation, John, with long COVID. You've got a new 
post in your blog, which is really worth reading, and we'll put the link to that particular blog in the text around this podcast on screen. What has stopped the chronic effects of COVID-19 being discussed and highlighted more widely? I understand that the acute effects and the outbreaks and public health authorities have really focused on that. We're doing it right now in Melbourne and Sydney. But there are a lot of people out there suffering. A lot of people seem to be suffering chronic effects of long COVID. What do you believe has stopped us discussing that aspect of the disease more deeply and widely? It's not clear to me at all why we're not talking about it, because it really is. When I wrote the blog that you just mentioned, I was of the opinion that the studies that relied on self-report suggest that there's at least 15 to 20 percent of people who recover from the acute infection end up with long COVID symptoms. A day or two after that, I posted that blog, a huge study was published in the US, which said that 23%, they did a study of 2 million people, 23% were suffering from a variety of post-COVID symptoms that involve pain, breathing difficulties, malaise, fatigue, things like elevated cholesterol and elevated blood pressure, gut symptoms, migraine, skin problems, heart problems, sleep disturbance, anxiety and depression. It affects almost every organ in in the body. And it turned out in that study that the more severe the case, and this was something that had become clear in the earlier literature, about half of the people who survive uh, from a severe infection end up with this set of symptoms. About 30% of people with mild to moderate, but even almost 20% of people who had asymptomatic disease. This is a real element in the people's lives who survived this. Most of the estimates have just come from self-report and the studies that have explored evidence using imaging of organs or, or whatever seem to suggest that there's a much wider spectrum of organ damage than are necessarily producing symptoms. And, and that may emerge later in life or following some other disorder. So I suspect that, you know, the 15 to 20 or 25 may even just be a flaw for what we've got as a consequence. The many health workers who, who clinically manage this, they point out the wide spectrum and say, hang on, we need a whole lot of new systems in place. We've got clinical management facing the problem. It's a set of different syndromes with different manifestations presenting in, in, as a result of a different disease processes. And therefore we need a sort of multi-focused treatment playbook and the playbook hasn't been drafted. So nobody's talking about it because everybody's hoping it isn't true. And it looks massive to me it's across the whole of humanity, over, over and above the huge caseload and the death toll associated with acute infection. We need to focus on the fact that this is a long-term disease and it'll continue to grow and remain with us probably for decades. Nobody knows quite how the, what the proper management is, but all of this says the acute disease burden, the acute mortality and the chronic disease burden say we should stick with our Australian-New Zealand approach of border management, case identification, disease surveillance, physical distancing, the whole nine yards. That's the best approach we have. And then we should learn to manage this disease for the people who are suffering from long COVID. And it's so early on in the progress of the disease that we, in terms of durations, you've described some severities and 
and the various organs of the body, but the duration of the chronic effect, that's unknown at the moment. It is unknown, and, and it's not clear whether it ever goes away. And, and some people, there was a, a case just a few days ago of a, a writer who, I think she was 50, was suffering so badly she took her own life. And I suspect that that may well be, again, the tip of the proverbial iceberg. We've been talking about vaccination, and vaccination, its speed or otherwise, sits centre stage, certainly here in Australia and I suspect in New Zealand as well. So will vaccination of the various vaccines and whatever boosters are needed, will they ameliorate, in your opinion, or even prevent some of these various chronic effects of COVID-19? In as much as if anyone gets the disease after they've been vaccinated, they have milder symptoms or no symptoms. They just get infected. And given that those people who have long COVID, they're at lower risk if they've had lower symptomatic disease. I think it's fairly clear that vaccination should help ameliorate the overall population burden, whether it does in any one individual is another question, but as a population burden, I would think so, yes. Finally, John, as you're well aware and probably don't really want to look at it too much, often the fringes is all sorts of stuff going on in terms of various therapies, some of them absolutely harebrained, but some quite strong movements accusing the orthodox medical practitioners of ignoring obvious therapies and obvious ways of, of ameliorating the effects of this disease. And of course, we saw Trump full of a cocktail of various therapies that got him out of hospital pretty quickly as President of the United States. He had the most expensive and the best. But are there at the side of the vaccination processes some therapies which you would identify as emerging and maybe real possibilities to help people with both the acute and the chronic effects of COVID-19? The antibody therapies, some of the variants are escaping from some of those antibody therapies. For the other therapies that have been vaunted, I see no really compelling evidence out of good clinical trials that tell me this is a good treatment. So on that side of it, they may emerge. If vaccination has the outcome we're all hoping for, perhaps there'll be less incentive to develop those therapies, but that'll be interesting to watch. Yes, and of course, the, you know, the, the drug companies are, are busy working on therapies. It's just that at the moment, and maybe I've missed something, but I haven't seen anything that's really compelling. John, again, uh, we're very thankful you were able to spend the time with us again today. At this stage in the pandemic in the world, there were new questions to ask, things to clarify. Thank you so much for being with us again right here in the Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. I wanted to say one thing about the key lessons, if you think about that, to remember that we're all in this together, and by that I mean the whole population of the world, that we need to share resources that we need to build capacity for public health approaches everywhere, that vaccines and relevant therapies, many designed and delivered with taxpayer money somewhere in the rich world, should be the world's treasures, not a source of private profit, and that therefore we should help build capacity for production of these in the low and middle income countries. And more generally, we need to focus on reduction of poverty and improvement in literacy, particularly female literacy, everywhere. These are a key part of our, if you like, human infrastructure response to this and future pandemics. John, thank you. And perhaps we'll see you again here in the Transit Zone with future developments. Our guest 
Once again in the transit zone, epidemiologist Professor John Potter with us in Nelson, New Zealand. And as I said earlier, check out the on-screen text for more information on John, his CV, etc. And that link to John's blog and his recent post, it's very interesting, you should read it, on long COVID. That's something we should be talking about much more, I think. If you'd like to email us here at the Transit Zone, this is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. Your comments, your questions, ideas for podcast episodes are always welcome here in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.